Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. Today, my guest is Brett Davidson. He's a consultant who's worked in public health, in narrative, and in storytelling. And he brings a vast and rich experience around how to use narratives for social justice, social change, how to use storytelling as well for the same ends. Now, um, you'll hear this in the podcast. We've known each other for a very long time. But I thought about this as I went through this episode about how life drafts or crafts very interesting ways of you meeting people. So um, I met Brett about 15 years ago. Um, This was a time that I went to Kenya for um, an event and we became part of a a group of people who were working on a project um, around stopping uh, stockouts of essential medications across the continent. But I only tell this backstory to to give a little bit of context about how I actually ended up going to this event. Uh, So it was, you know, at our office, we'd been asked to put in applications to attend this event. Well, two people had been asked to put in applications to to attend this event, and I was one of them. And um, we both got accepted. However, um, there was only resources to send one person to this event. And um, I remember my my boss saying she she couldn't make a decision. She she thought you know we were equally qualified and suitable to go, and there was no way to make a decision. And so we were both called to um, uh, our boss's uh, assistance office uh, to 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 see what we would do. And it was it was like well I don't know you know both of us were like I don't know who should go. And then she said, oh, the only way to go about this at this point is to do a coin toss. So call call heads or tails and I'll throw this coin and, you know, wherever it lands is whoever goes. And so she took out her coin and I called heads and this coin landed on heads. And that's really just how I ended up at this event. And I, you know, I just say that to, I mean, it's part of this conversation that you'll hear in this podcast episode about story, about how everything is a story. There's a story to everything and our experiences and how we bring that to our digital lives, how we embody that as well in our, our lived experiences. And so, you know, this is a story about how one shift in a dynamic led me to a space and here we are 15 years later and I'm speaking uh, to this uh, very wonderful person that I've known for so long about storytelling and about the power of narratives and about the power of our work for social change. All right, I will leave it at that and I'll let Brett get into this conversation and uh, I'll catch you on the other side of it. Hi, I'm Brett Davidson. I'm a consultant uh, based in New York, working on narrative change and narrative and social change. And I work with uh, foundations and nonprofits. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Um, Now, I've known you for a long time. I think it's almost 15 years now. Wow. (laughs) um, Yeah, and I think we were doing something to do with stockouts of... um, essential medications and, you know, figuring out yes. the digital 
stopped at that point. And I remember that you needed us to have Gmail accounts for our little group. And I didn't have a Gmail account at that point. I had a, a Yahoo account. And I was like, why, why do I need this Gmail account? And, you know, that's that's really, and now I only use Gmail. So it's very interesting when you look back at all these things and the mm. resistances and then, you know, oh, actually that becomes the thing that we end up really using. Um, but perhaps you can just tell me a little bit about your history Um um, in communications and your specific focus now on narrative change and how that's come about over the years of your work? Sure. Well, I guess I started my career in radio. So, um, you know, as a producer and an anchor on a radio show in South Africa, we were dealing with current affairs. And um, I guess, so I suppose stories were always important because when I was interviewing people, you, you know, and for, for for the current affairs on radio, I found that the people who could actually tell a story were the ones who kept my attention and I think listeners' attention, right? People who could really, um, very effective at telling stories and making sense of things through stories. Um, mm -hmm. And I, you know, often interviewed people from nonprofit organizations and NGOs and they would talk in this kind of really complicated jargon. And mm -hmm. half the time I didn't know what they were saying. So they'd use, you know, abstract words like empowerment and institutions and engaging and processes. And whenever I asked, but what do you do? They'd repeat these kind of jargon words. And, you know, I really wanted to kind of get to concrete examples. Like, what does that look like on the ground? Right. And I think, um, so when I went, left kind of the journalism and went to work in the nonprofit field and was re really working with organizations to help them think about how they get their message across, I remembered that. And, you know, and I th think this idea of how do you, and so really then started to work with experts in storytelling to help train people in the skills of storytelling, because I think it is a skill. And that's mm -hmm. something anyone can learn. You know, we all have stories, but I think some people tell them more effectively than others. So how can we actually convey the skills for effective storytelling and learn how to hold an audience? Um, yeah. I know it's not about kind of getting rid of factual information, but I think how do you pack package factual information in a way that it makes sense in a story? And, you know, and mm -hmm. since then, I've really delved into a lot of the research and learned that stories are how we find a fundamental way about how we communicate as human beings. And we package information into stories. And so a lot of the kind of the debates over the past years about kind of the post-truth era and why people, you know, not, not are paying attention to the facts and the science. And, and, you know, realizing through the research that you can't just give people another set of facts and say, don't believe what you believe, hear the facts, because people um, really will reject the facts if it doesn't make sense in the story they have of the world. Right. And so... Realizing that I moved from, you know, how do you tell, help people to tell stories about individual things to thinking about the whole idea of story as a way of looking at the world. And then mm -hmm. realizing that, um, you know, in addition to using legal strategies to bring about change, in addition to, you know, sending out communication about things, in addition to marching on the ground and making petitions and all the things people do to, to create change, we need to also work at the level of story. Because mm -hmm. there are fundamental stories of what we call narratives that help us make sense of the world, help us, you know, understand who we are, help us understand our place, you know, and others' place in our country, in our nation, in our neighborhood, in our world. Mm -hmm. um, and those stories then determine, like, who gets resources and who doesn't, who is believed and who's not believed, which stories get actually told and which stories are silenced. And so unless we really address those underlying narratives, many of the victories that we might have in the policy sphere will be short-lived or they'll be kind of, we'll change the law, but then nothing will change on the ground because people won't really be behind those policies and won't want to have, you know, implement them. Um, mm -hmm. So we have to work at this level of story and belief 
you know, and what are the, and so for example, you know, I'm living in the US now, originally from South Africa, but one of the big stories is the American dream, right? This idea that, you know, mm-hmm. anyone can make it in America if you just work hard enough. And of course, that's not true. We know from the statistics and the facts that actually, uh, social mobility is very difficult in this country and much more difficult than many other rich countries. But if you tell that to many people, they're saying that's nonsense. You know, the, there's the American dream. So that narrative is so powerful that it will really stop people from really paying attention to what the facts are. And the facts contradict that narrative, but the narrative always wins. And mm-hmm. so how do we shift those narratives to bring them more in, in line with reality and to bring them more in line with social justice so that the, the narratives can help us say, well, you know, yes, everyone wants to succeed. There are these barriers standing in their way. We need to move those barriers so that everyone can succeed in the way they should be able to. And rather assuming than assuming that just, you know, it's up to each individual. So like one, one of the key narratives then is this idea of individualism, right? It's up to yeah. you to succeed. It's your individual choices, your decisions you make, whether you succeed or fail, how hard you work. And so that narrative really makes systems invisible and structures invisible. And so, you know, we blame people for failures and we praise them for the successes, not realizing some people, it's easier for them because the systems and the structures are designed to help them succeed. For some people, it's more difficult because the systems and the structures are designed to actually not let them succeed. And often Mm -hmm. those systems and structures then uh, work according to race, according to class, according to gender, and so on. And so that narrative of individualism makes all of those things invisible to us. And so how do we create these stories that help us see the systems so that we can change the systems to enable everyone to succeed. Now, just picking back um, on, on what you said, and I think the American dream and, and narrative and dominant narratives. Now, I mean, the American dream and American lifestyle, everything, art, culture is 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 conveyed to all of us across the world because of the, the might of, you know, America's media, yes. its politics, its positioning in the world. And so all of us sort of grow up with an idea of America, which is fed to us through the media and all these spaces, social media now as well. How 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 much more difficult does it become when a dominant narrative is being perpetuated so much to then, you know, create a counter narrative and say, you know, well, that's not exactly how it works because as much as you're getting all of this information on the ground it's a very different experience so how do you challenge these dominant narratives that are filtered so massively across the world um, to people who then have this idea that that is what this place or this reality is I mean I think you know people do that and I think one of you talked about you know the early days of discovering gmail and of course you know things have really changed massively since then and we have social media we have all these outlets that people have and of course the huge problems with those we know there are many problems with you know around surveillance and algorithms that are problematic but at the same mm-hmm. time that that has created this explosion of enabling people to create their own narratives and tell their own stories right in a way that wasn't possible before where we had like you know two or three media organizations that were the gatekeepers that you know really decided yeah. what got in and, and not so I think there's a lot more possibility for, you know, people, everyone has a camera on their phone, everyone can create videos and people can use them on TikTok or Instagram, whatever. So I think there's, there's all sorts of possibilities for people to tell their own stories and we're seeing that, right? And we're Mm -hmm. seeing organized, and then we're seeing organizations such as Africa No Filter and others, which are really dedicated to supporting new kinds of journalism, new kinds of storytelling. So I think that's really come up and challenging those kind of dominant narratives. In places like the US, you see organizations like the Pop Culture Collaborative and others. There's a few others in the UK. There's one called Pop Change, 
Are you really also then trying to work within the Hollywood entertainment industry to change the kind of narratives that even come out of Hollywood? Um, and of mm-hmm. course, that's focused mostly on like the US internally. But as you said, that reaches everywhere, right? So these, right. these narratives. So, um, you know, trying to firstly diversify writers' rooms so that you have more representation of people of color, of women, of people with disabilities, and then to mm-hmm. try and shift, you know, the ways that stories are told and the kinds of stories that are getting told. And so organizations like that are providing funding, uh, they're providing mentorship. They're providing kind of all sorts of kind of um, policy advocacy to help shift the kinds of stories that even come out of Hollywood and we get new kinds of mm-hmm. narratives. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, over this 15-year trajectory of us knowing each other, I mean, social media at that point in time, I think there was perhaps only Facebook was a thing, um, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of Twitter as well. And, you know, now we have new platforms that have emerged. I mean, TikTok is a new one, but then Twitter and Facebook have sort of solidified their place, sort of tapering down at this point in time. But what would you say was the role? I mean, you started out in radio and now we went through this, we're going through the social media era. What has been the shift that you've seen in the way that storytelling happens, in the way that narratives are packaged and are received with this transition? Well, as I said, you know, I think on the one hand, you've got a lot more diversity now, right? And people can, mm-hmm. there's a low, also a much lower barrier to entry to being a media producer, to, you know, producing, you know, people call right. themselves content, you know, producers and so on and so forth. So yeah. that's created all sorts of possibilities. And what you're seeing also is new kinds of journalism. And maybe the, we need to think beyond journalism to kind of new kinds of storytelling happening, right? So it's fact-based storytelling, but not exactly journalism only. There's all sorts of other ways. Um, and so mm-hmm. you often see, you've seen now recently, in recent years, new journalistic organizations come up. So, you know, beyond individuals being able to tell their own stories, but get feminist focused journalism organizations. There's, you know, in, in different parts of the world, you get one in the US called Translash, right? Which is telling the stories of trans, black trans people in particular. And, and, you know, invest, but also doing investigative journalism and how the mainstream media are talking about trans people and so on. Mm-hmm. Outlets, there's uh, one in, uh, you know, and Central America as well, you know, for the feminist focus, doing journalism with feminist focus and for, you know, adopting feminist ethos in their storytelling and reporting. So you're getting all these new developments happening, which I think are not only changing the way that they do storytelling for themselves, but actually as they get attention, they're starting to attract the attention of the mainstream legacy media. And actually, you know, those people are being interviewed on other major outlets. They, other people are paying attention to them. And so they're starting to shift slowly the way that these narratives are conveyed in all sorts of other kinds of media, which is a kind of exciting development, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the other, on the other hand, I think one of the dangers is the huge fragmentation right of audiences and so i think this is one of the things i don't think we don't pay enough attention to is that people get very excited about producing material content whether it's videos photographs whatever it is yeah we're changing the narratives we're doing this thing and i think the question we don't often ask is is yes but who's seeing it who's getting exposed to it Um, because not only is the algorithm dividing us right so you know, as you say, if you, if you kind of watch something on Netflix, you know, you watch a, a sort of, I don't know, like a British detective drama, the next thing that's all they're going to show you, right? Because here's some more right. British detective dramas. And so the algorithm, you know, sends you on a kind of, on a, on a trajectory. Um, and so you, you start to get people living in this fragmented reality where, you know, we can all live in our own kind of universe, depending on what our interests are and our kind of 
previous preferences and mm-hmm. the algorithm just takes us down a path. So that's the danger. And then we start living in a, in a really kind of different reality. But at the same time, we have all these new possibilities. But I think the, the idea we really need to pay attention to audiences because I think not only do you have the algorithm, but you have this interesting research that's been done in the field of political psychology in terms of what kinds of people pay attention to what kinds of media, right? So in the US, there's a lot of research showing, for example, that, you know, people who are more conservative in their politics like certain kinds of entertainment and people who are more liberal in their politics like different kinds of entertainment. So you can't mm-hmm. assume just because something's on TV that it's going to change people's mind. It's probably only reaching the people who already kind of have a kind of liberal perspective or a conservative perspective. And I think one of the big challenges these days is how do you confront people with material that will surprise them, that that's not their pre- predetermined preference. And right. I think that's a big challenge that confronts us in the media today. Right. And and you said something really important, I think, about story and about how you, the story of the world, like everyone has a story about the world, which is formed from, you know, whatever experiences you've had, childhood, et cetera, and, you know, how you've navigated the world. And, you know, when you talk about changing people's perspectives or shifting people's perspectives, or at least even just exposing them to a story that they might not normally consume. I mean, we saw this with COVID. We saw how, you know, there were people who just were anti-vaccination and they just, you know, there was no way to get them to get on board with that narrative. Yeah. How do we then, you know, bring you fine. We, we, we know this segmentation of audiences. We know different people based on experiences, class, gender, race, etc. consume different things. But then if we, if we want to kind of bring people to new stories or new ideas about the world, especially with this atomization that you've just talked about. The algorithm is serving you. You know, if you are watching crime, true crime all day, you're you're watching true crime all day. How then do you get to someone who's completely atomized in their experience and has a story about the world and, you know, it's not shifting, no one around them is shifting that narrative. How do you get to those kinds of people with different stories? I think that's the the really big challenge. And I think the answer lies in community and and in social connection. So Mm. I think we have to not only think about, well, we have to think about in the digital realm, which I'm not an expert in by any means, digital communities and how they form, right? And how you get people and where those people are and how do you connect with them. And then I think you also have to think about actual communities and having how do you create that social connection because a lot of the research shows that actually persuasion doesn't just happen only through a message getting a message out there right it happens through social connection we look to other people it's the principle of social proof we look to other people who are like us for cues about what to do and what to believe and so on and and we find that you know when we're in groups whether you know churches work this way right you become you join a church there's a lot of social influence um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a thing that you believe, but actually like you go to the Bible study on the Wednesday, you go to the cake sale on the Sunday. It's like yeah. it becomes part of your just everyday social life. And that's how really how people change as, as, you know, they, um, you know, come across people that, that kind of like them. Um, but maybe have a little bit of a different perspective and they, hmm, well, maybe, you know, maybe I was a bit wrong in what I thought. So it's really, we have to think about those social connections. And there's mm-hmm. a really interesting, um, field of research into fandoms yeah. um, and, you know, uh, Tracy Vance like and other people at the pop culture collaborative in the U S there are others, but they've been looking at, for example, you know, the different kinds of fandoms and how they then influence the followers, right? So you have Beyonce's fans, you have Taylor Swift's fans, you have the fans of Korean pop groups. 
Uh, you have fans of particular TV shows, and they almost operate as they were describing us. The, the, I really thought it very much is like a church, right? You have the law that goes with it. You have certain symbols that are really important. You have certain words. You have certain ways to dress. You have, you know, this kind of legend that builds up right in the fandom. Um, and these fandoms are proving hugely influential for then influencing people either positively or negative in terms of politics, in terms of social, you know, sort of norms and so on and so forth. And so you get these, I guess, virtuous fandoms and toxic fandoms, right? And then, and they're having a, they're really interesting way in which social influence is also happening. And that's a very interesting thing because I, I recently facilitated a session at the Internet Governance Forum. And one of the questions was from someone about fandoms and about, their role in our understanding of digital cultures and what's happening digitally. And this kind of goes back to this. Um, I think we can agree that when we talk about digitality, a lot in formal spaces, we're focusing more on big data. We're focusing on um, the science of, of, of the internet and that sort of thing. Um, the technicalities, the policy areas, et cetera. And the social aspects of it tend to be, you know, I guess, as is often the case with anything mm. that's arts cultural, we sort of say, Oh, well, you know, it's interesting, but it's, it's not hard science. We can't give you big statistics, graphs, tables, et cetera. And yet that is where really you understand you know, the social aspects of, of, of human beings. We are all social and yeah. we're all influenced in these ways. How then can we think about, you know, bringing more of that kind of content or information into spaces that are, I think, somewhat resistant to, to, to really having that look or perspective about the digital space in that way? Yeah, I think, you know, I think really it's about, you know, finding spaces to, you know, where are those spaces and can you know, get people to write about those things and try and propose articles or, you know, propose pieces about that in these bigger conversations or bring that to discussions in some of these organizations that are dealing with kind of, kind of bigger picture, big data and so on. Um, Cause it is an interest, a very interesting aspect. And I think, you know, as you say, um, you know, we need not only to focus on the policy as important as that is in these bigger developments, but on the, how people are using the technology, right? And, mm -hmm. and what, and kind of the social trends that are happening. And that is, I mean, also super valid research, but it often stays in the realm of kind of advertising or marketing rather than kind of, you know, policy questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, we talked a little bit about TikTok just before mm. we, we started this recording and about how, um, you know, currently we're seeing something, you know, very traumatizing that's happening, the conflict that's happening in Gaza and, um, how, we are all experiencing it very differently depending on you know how you're consuming from a social media perspective how you consume social media mm. uh, which stance you take on issues and who you listen to and you know obviously these algorithms keep feeding us whatever it is that we believe or don't believe um and then you know also just having I think for me, one of the things that's been very challenging has been, you know, going especially on Twitter or X um, and, you know, you're seeing videos of children dying dead and, you know, then you'll see whatever else comes on your feed, which is, you know, can be some hilarious video about something else that's happening somewhere else. Uh, I just wonder about this, you know, having this experience that's happening and then we're all, having it conveyed to us very differently also by the media you know depending on what media you you are 
paying attention to, they have very different political focuses at the moment. Um, what is, you know, what what is, I, I don't even know if that's really a question, what question I can ask, but I mean, what has been your experience of, of living through this? A lot of what people have experienced is being overwhelmed, right? So um, that you, as you said, you can't avoid it, right? Which is maybe a good thing because, you know, it's an major thing that's happening in the world, you know, what's happening in Gaza right now. You can't avoid it. And so, I mean, you could look at it one way, which is, yes, okay, you, you're seeing this traumatic scene of a child dying and then there's a cat video or whatever it is. And so it's this really bizarre kind of dissonance. Um, and also it all comes to seem a little bit like entertainment, right? Like mm. it's just like mixed up with entertainment and so on. On the other hand, I think you could flip that and say, well, yeah, people are watching cat videos and suddenly they're confronted with a video about Palestine. And it's like, what's going on? So in a sense, it's like intruding into what people might normally you know, pay attention to. And so I think one response I've heard from people is just like feeling overwhelmed, like they want to shut it off, like it's enough, right? You can only deal with so much at a time. Yeah. And that's, that I think is, a, you know, is, is one a legitimate response. Um, and not only about Palestine, right? I think, you know, I think in previous years, we could get on with our lives. Not, you know, we knew something bad was happening somewhere in the world, but it wasn't like in front of us all day, every day, right? It was like over there somewhere. And now it's just like right in front of you all the time. Um, yeah. And it can get overwhelming because I think, you know, um, you just like suddenly you have all these different conflicts all the time and it's just like too much. Yeah. And because you, and as well, because you don't know what you can do about it, right? It's just there. There's nothing. You feel a bit like um, disempowered about doing anything about it. So I think one yeah. response could be like apathy and disconnection and cynicism, right? It's too much. Let me just watch my cat video. But another response I think you're seeing in the massive protests that are happening is that people are getting like, I can't watch this. I can't see this child die and not do something. What can I do? And so you're seeing like massive protests happening all around the world as well, where people who maybe wouldn't have got involved are like, I can't, like, I have to do something. So I think there's a positive and negative to it as well. The other aspect, and we were chatting with us among friends the other day around someone was saying, well, you know, um, certain interests are using TikTok and manipulating, you know, using it to manipulate people and create conflict. And yes, on one hand, that's happening not only in TikTok, but, you know, it's on Twitter X and Facebook as well. On the other hand, I know, and I'm, I'm not on TikTok myself, but people I'm close to are, and have been telling me how, you know, it's really being used as a way to educate people about the history, you know, either through uh, book talk or, you know, people talking, reading books and explaining them or just, you know, responding to videos people have posted and correcting the record and so on and so forth. And so people are getting this, certainly young people are getting this history lesson that they haven't had before. They never got it in school. They never got it mm. from the mainstream media. And I think that's another reason that you're seeing this kind of really, and certainly in the U.S., I think there's a lot of newspaper reports how the younger generation is not aligned with the kind of response from the mm. political mainstream, which is generally older people, you know, and are being mm. very critical. And so, and I think uh, one of the factors is this thing that's happening on TikTok and other media that people are getting, you know, new other alternative voices coming out and challenging the mm. mainstream narrative. And I think, you know, going back to the idea of the story or, you know, having people having an understanding of a story, mm. And, you know, a lot of people don't have an understanding of the story, the history of, of this ongoing conflict. And, and then, you know, people then having to, in a sense, post videos of dead people, which is really saying something about either our apathy or our lack of interest or, you know, our overwhelm with knowing enough information about what's going on to the, to the extent that, you know, people have to post corpses 
for people to feel like, oh, I have to pay attention to this. What is going on? You know, what has happened in our system, you know, that that has led us there? Because, you know, normally we do not um, promote or support, you know, putting pictures of dead people on social media. It's, you know, disrespectful to them. But then it, it seems like this is the only way at this point in time that people feel like people actually pay attention to what's going on. What what is what has gone wrong with the system to to get us here? I don't know. I don't know if I have an easy answer to that. You know, I think it's again the you know the ever presence of cell phones and cameras and you know video equipment. Yeah. So yeah. people, and I think part of it is people wanting to share with the rest of the world, right? Like this is yeah. happening in front of me. Like look, there's this child that's just been killed. So there's a kind of real need of people to show what's happening and to ask the outside world to kind of intervene and help, right? Yeah. Um, which I, th- I think exists. But I think that, you know, the trauma that happens, so, you know, it's not just the trauma of, of those people there, but the secondary trauma that happens through people watching that is right, right, and, and watching that. And then you think about, you know, the content mediators where they exist who have to watch those awful videos and kind of decide whether to let them on or not, right? So you have these new stories of, for example, content mediators in places like Kenya and other places being paid a yeah. pittance. And having to, you know, view these videos and being traumatized from having to watch one after the other after the other. And there's no support for them. They're not being paid much money. And so they're having to do all this work to protect everyone else from the trauma. Um, and so there's a lot of things that I think we haven't, you know, we're just not geared up to address and have to think about how to deal with this. And then how do you deal with a huge, you know, kind of society wide trauma of us all confronting this and dealing with this, right? And, and, and how do we all process it? I think it's just, as I said, I think there's a sense of overwhelm, right? Like we just don't know mm. what to do with it anymore. Yeah. Mm. And you know, do you see overwhelm as, is it generative in any way for kind of narrative intervention? Can we actually think about overwhelm as a political stance? Can we, can we take it politically and use it in some way? Do you see, do you see that as a possibility or is, is it just where, where it's too much right now? Life is hard enough. I've just got to focus on me and what's in front of me. And that's, that's life. And, and this is the way I think, you know, we need like, I think very good political leadership, right? So I think this is where leaders could come and say, um, yeah, like we know this is overwhelming. Um, but here's, you know, it doesn't have to just be something that you view and it's traumatic and it's traumatizing. Like here are things you can do about it. Um, you know, n- not only here are things we can do about it, but here's how to think about who you are in the context of all of this. And I think that's one narrative that I think we forget about is like not not only what's happening and who's responsible and what, but like who are you as a person watching this? What like are you a passive viewer or are you a political actor who can actually take action and do something? Like what is your role? And so I said that narrative about who we are as as citizens, right? And talk about mm-hmm. us as citizens and as members of political communities, social communities, and world community, not as just individual consumers of media. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know if. I think good political leadership could help set set that narrative or shift that narrative and help us see ourselves as connected, right? Say like, well, you're not just someone watching this, you're connected, you can do something about it. Maybe not about that particular thing, but about this other thing, you can take action, you can join this, you can join that, you know, and help us um, reconnect with one another. And I think that there's a lot of potential in there if we have political leaders who are going to help us do that. I think mm-hmm. the problem is that most political leaders have not done that. They've kind of right. they've fostered the fragmentation and said, you know, this is, you know, and kind of pointed fingers and, and kind of at enemies rather than helping us think of ourselves as, as, as kind of people who can, um, you know, join a kind of movement or whatever it might be to, to help, you know, correct things. 
And I suppose it's also something to do. I mean, if you've been on social media for long enough, you've seen enough conflicts, you've seen enough causes, you know, and retreated, shared, you know, perhaps spread word out. Um, and, and I just think of, you know, the early days of Twitter and how, for instance, the Barack Obama presidential campaign was, you know, run a lot on, you know, young people having this like real interest and and belief that, you know, this is change and, you know, we're going to put ourselves here and we're going to pass the message on. And I wonder now, I mean, you know, younger people are on TikTok and, and as we talked about, you know, they're, they're sharing their information and, in, 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 you know, trying to come up with factual content to counter what people may or may not know. But then the, the nature of TikTok as well is very much that um, it's an it's an isolated or an individual experience. It's not the mm. same thing as Twitter, where it's very communal. I mean, you can kind of go on and have this very curated experience of TikTok based just on what you follow, who you follow, what you sort of like, and stay away from knowing anything outside of that, which has always been so, sort of how social media has worked. Mm. But the atomization now is, you know, I think it's, it's become even larger. And then there's the apathy because people are like, we've been here before, we've tweeted, we've shared, you know, how many more times can we keep doing this? And then also, I think the especially now with this conflict is the, the repercussions, we've seen people lose their jobs. We've seen people, um, you know, being heavily censored for, for saying anything. So there's all these things that are happening that make it even more challenging. So how... How can we use these spaces, you know, to 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 kind of create these communities with all these things that are happening? I mean, also the the politics of X and you know Elon Musk and you know all of that's happening as well. Can we still rely on social media in those same ways, or are we sort of going to have to shift back into the offline realities to um, to to figure it out in a in a in a grander way? Yeah, I think we need, and I think we have to look, look at both levels. I mean, you know, to reference what you talked about earlier, I think we need more discussions around policy, right? We need actually sensible policies to help regulate and manage social media, right? It's, we can't leave it up to some billionaire, you know, who owns some platform to decide what we see and what we don't see and what their policies are and so on. There needs to be actually at a political level, some kind of making sense and policies around this, right? And, and regulations. Um, and that mm-hmm. really hasn't happened because I think most of the lawmakers don't really understand what to do, um, or, you know, and, um, and, and how to take action. And these companies are so rich and so powerful, right? So they've resisted, yeah. but I think that's really crucial. We have mm-hmm. to have, you know, have some kind of policy level intervention. Um, but then I think also we have to, you know, we have to, as communicators, maybe uh, as individual kind of, you know, non, you know, uh, people who are not in positions of power operate at, at a, I think at both as, as like an in-person and an online level, right? Obviously we're not, not going to get rid of the digital world or online world that's here, but I think mm-hmm. we have to find ways to cross, cross that and combine that with in-person interventions and events and so on. Right. So we can actually find people where they're living in the neighborhoods and find ways to also, you know, have people um, uh, come across messages or events or so on. And I think that's mm-hmm. where we can, you know, take lessons from artistic activists, right. Who, activists who work with artists and stage interventions, right? Um, online, but also in person in real places so mm-hmm. that they, you know, people can w- be walking along to the shops and suddenly they see something and it's telling a story. It's an action. It's a surprising thing. It's a kind of performance artwork, whatever it is. 
and that creates an opportunity for a conversation. And so I think we have to think about combining the in-person and online worlds in, in some way to really enable, enable us to get out of the algorithm and meet people where they're living and actually help them, you know, help people think about and discuss things, you know, that, and take action. Mm, getting out of the algorithm. Yeah, it's a very strange time because, you know, so, so much of our lives is lived within the algorithm. I mean, you're, you're on Twitter and there's an algorithm behind that. You're on Facebook. There's an algorithm behind that. TikTok, your Netflix, you come home from work. And I've, you know, had conversations like this over many years. And I've, mm. you know, said, hey, do you, do you, have you ever thought about, you know, when you add someone on Facebook, why you see them for a few days and then they disappear? Most people just have no idea that there's a science, there's a whole um, model that is tailoring what we see and what we don't see. And so I wonder what you think about the consciousness raising that needs to be done around people really understanding how social media works beyond I just log in and set up an account and I just say yes to whatever privacy laws, regulations that they say, and here I am. Yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, that's a really important point as well as the idea of media education and media literacy, you know, online literacy, mm-hmm. you know, that used to be a, a thing as well, you know, even before the digital world, you know, like, you know, in mm-hmm. part of political movements is the kind of media literacy and helping people understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's even more needed now, you know, and, you know, as things change so fast, I think that's really crucial. Um, but right. again, it's, I think, an area that's, that's been really neglected. Um, you know, and, and you could see it happening in schools and all sorts of places, right? Where you kind of educate people about how things work and how the messages they see are constructed. And then so that people come with more critical mind frame. And so it's not combating message by message, but rather helping people be more literate in general about the media and understanding what's going on. And of course, with the world, you know, well, I, with AI and the potential for deep fakes and so on, that's even more urgent. Yeah. Yeah. And now, I mean, just um, to sort of conclude um, in, in our thought process about story, you know, I think, you know, when we're kids, we're, we, you know, in school, write a story about yourself, tell a story about yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then storytelling sort of gets lost somewhere along the way. It's, you know, something for kids or something artsy people do. Mm. Yet everything about our lives is a story. Um you know, even science is a story. You know, it's a it's a whole way of thinking about about the world. How how do we, you know, not lose that premise of the story? You know, with the ten year old who then stops writing compositions in, in school because now we're focusing on you know whatever it is because the stories don't matter. How do we try to keep the tradition of storytelling alive beyond that phase and and really build that consciousness that our lives are all stories this is this is a story this experience is a story how do we keep people engaged with that i think some kind of a school level thing would be great why would we have kind of store build up storytelling skills and help people do that throughout school and education i think would be really great but i think you know that's why i always often you know turn as a Woman, I've been working with a bit. You know, talks about the role of um, art, right, and the role of artists, and kind of look to artists and art and kind of uh, and storytellers as leaders, right, and help them mm-hmm. figure help help them let us let them help us figure out how to talk about things and tell stories. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that the revaluing of art and and is, is really really important. Um, you know, mm-hmm. um, and this uh, actually you should interview at some point Merit Mendefro. Um, 
who has this whole, she's written a whole thing about uh, fiction, the role of fiction, right? She calls the fragile real and how fiction these days is sometimes more true than the fact, right? And, and fiction is really mm-hmm. powerful. And she goes into the like, African um, cinema and so on and analyzes and so on. Um, anyway, how, you know, fiction can really help us get to truths that maybe are almost too difficult for us to talk about in reality mm-hmm. or, you know, help us give us a little bit of distance from something that's too close to us to, for us to see. And so I think art and things like fiction can help provide some distance and help show us things from a new perspective mm-hmm. and help us see, oh, actually, I didn't realize this was an assumption I had that like maybe is not true. You know, this wasn't, you know, um, helps us step out of that narrative that we've been living and breathing and helps us see it in a new way and be able to then look at it and say, hmm, that's the story I had. Maybe that story is not true. Whose interest does that story serve? Maybe it's not my interest. Maybe I need to shift that story. And I think art is really crucial in that. Just my final question. You have moved, you know, you've been in public health, social justice, which are not, you know, mutually exclusive spaces. But, you know, what what is your experience of, you know, the storytelling? I mean, there there is an, of course, there's an essence to storytelling across whatever sector, genre or experience you're working with. But what is, you know, what is that element of narrative? How is it different? How does it look different when you're looking at it from a public health perspective per se and you're looking at it from a social justice angle? I mean, I think for me, they've been similar because we, I've, I've worked in health from a social justice perspective, or we could call it health justice. But I think yeah. public health traditionally has really focused on changing individuals' behavior, right? So it's, the story has always been like, um, you know, like, for example, you should use a condom because, you know, um, think about AIDS or, or HIV, or you should, you know, brush your teeth or whatever. So it's the, the, often the kind of focus on, I think, of storytelling in public health has been like, for example, using entertainment or edutainment to educate individual people about changing their health behaviors, right? Washing hands or wearing masks or COVID or going to get vaccinated, whatever, which is good and important. But I think from the social justice perspective, as I said, right at the start and circle back maybe to the beginning is how do we tell the stories that help people see systems? And so part of, I think, my journey in, in public health and in narrative was saying we need to move from focusing on people, the communities, as the problem, right? Like, why are these people not healthy? And, oh, we need to educate them. Yeah, maybe that's part of it. But actually, the people are not healthy because the system discriminates against them. The system does not allow them to be healthy. You know, if people are living on on, on, on a rubbish uh, dump, you know, people are forced to live in a neighborhood where there's factories na- next door and it's, they're polluting the air. You can't look at individual behavior and try and fix that and say that's going to make people healthy. You have to change the system. You have to clean the air. You have to clean, you know, you have to fix clean up the pollution if people feel that they don't want to go to a doctor because they know that that person's going to treat them rudely or discriminate against them they're not going to go to the doctor you know so you can tell them they must go to the doctor all you like but they're not mm. going to do it so the, the mm. whole shift i think narrative shift then in the health work was like how do we how do we change the systems and put the attention on the systems that are really making people unhealthy killing people and fix the yeah. system rather than trying to fix the people Right. You know, and see the system as the source of the problem. And then it's, it's not just telling people to change their individual behavior. It's, it's political action to change policies and change practices that are going to help people be healthy. And I think that's, you've seen that quite a shift that's really happening in this, this idea of health equity. You've seen the people make the connection in the last few years between racism and, you know, and, and health and the need, you know, racism is actually structural racism is making people unhealthy. It's killing people at a young age. It's, creating all these health problems. So how do we change those systems and those structures rather than focusing on individuals and individual sets of people? Right, right. 
Um, this has been very, very great, very rich, and um, we've gone cross-country quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to know in conclusion if there's anything that you feel we might just have overlooked that you 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 feel is burning for us to to address. Well, I guess maybe that is something I can mention. So I think in this work on story and storytelling and narrative, the other area that I got interested in was listening, right? And so that's the kind of flip side of storytelling is how do we create the listening to enable people's stories to be heard? to be told and to enable people to feel they are wanting to tell their story because there's an environment where they're being listened to. And so I think, you know, that's a whole other conversation to have, but I write mm-hmm. about storytelling. The other thing I write about is listening and I have a sub stack and, um, you know, that, um, write about both topics there. And so if people are interested in, you know, seeing more of what I sort of write about that, then that's where they could go. Thank you so much, Brett. Thank you very much for your time and for your work. Thanks, Finger. I really appreciate it. It was a really fascinating conversation. All right, that's a wrap. Um, As always, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Native Podcast or else if you have a burning question or a comment or feedback to offer, please don't hesitate to send an email to info at digitallynativepodcast.com. Um, As Britt said in his uh, final uh, points, he runs a newsletter which you can subscribe to to get more of his insights or reflections on narrative, listening and systemic change. You can find his substack, Britt's substack, um, at brittdavidson.substack.com and there you can enter your email address and subscribe to get uh, a weekly roundup of his reflections on those issues and matters. All right. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, hearing from you via email, if you do send an email, otherwise I look forward to um, talking with you again next time. All right. Take care until then. Bye.